Welcome to The Happy Wanderer. Every week, five of us from different backgrounds get together to discuss some of the most pressing, interesting topics in our adult world, more as kids would, in unexpected, spontaneous, open-ended ways. We hope that by cultivating this lost art of wandering within ourselves, we'll discover opportunities to connect with, understand, and support kids in more meaningful ways in this time of immense change. To join us every week and get a supplementary email with additional resources for the episode, sign up for our newsletter at happywandererpodcast.com. Follow and chat with us on Twitter at the underscore wonderment. Start the exploring with your kids with creative activities on these topics at thewonderment.com. And follow us to get mini episodes throughout the week on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Dogcatcher, and other top podcasting sites. And now, let's start the wandering. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Happy Wanderer. We are excited to be here this week. I'm Amy Schaefer. I am a writer, a creative director, a mom of a five-year-old, and recently, because of position as mom of a five-year-old, very creative explainer of things <laughs> to fairly persistent questioning. You're finding you have some things to explain. There are so many things in the world to explain. Yeah, Why? we grown-ups have a lot of explaining to do. Right <laughs> Why? Now. On a lot of levels. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's, Thanks it's, for making me feel at home. Yeah. I mean, it's just stuff, you, it's too inappropriate to even bring up. I know, yeah. These days. yeah. What do you do? Well, I'm Matt. I am uh, have been a high school teacher and elementary school director. And, um, you know, I didn't want to leave that cliffhanger from last week. I still don't have a sweater. <laughs> uh, just letting everyone know out there. We haven't gotten too much crowdsource help on this issue, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <Not that>. uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Brian. I used to work in government and policy and um, now work in the nonprofit space. And um, my wife is a second grade teacher and I have a two year old son and they keep me young. And I'm Joy Pagorni and I work with user engagement and experience, uh, specific, specifically with kid and family brands. And I'm just excited to be back. I wasn't here last week. We're excited to have you back. Welcome back. <laughs> nice sweater. Thanks. <laughs> she knows where to get them. <laughs> just follow her. My closet. <laughs> I'm not going to follow Joy to where she buys sweaters. <laughs> it would be a little risky. You know, as so many things that seem so simple are. Um, and that's a great segue, if if somewhat awkward. <laughs> nice handoff. <laughs> nice handoff. Into our uh, chosen wandering theme of the week. So every week we all go and explore, as we will, um, just all kinds of different information from around the web. Articles, videos, uh, posts, different things. See where we find inspiration and bring it all together. And then identify the theme that we feel like um, kind of weaves them together. And this week I thought it was interesting. And I again, it seems like there's definitely an effect of overall um, world events on all of these choices of theme. But this week, risk seemed like it was uh, part of everything that we all brought. And I, it was interesting because the, the concept of risk, what we perceive as a risk, why we perceive it as a risk, kind of the relationship of, you know, the inherent relationship of progress and risk. Um, all of those things seem to be very present in a lot of the the things that we've been thinking about this week. And 
in on that note with the timeliness timeliness of the element of risk um something that has been seen as a i won't could say a traditionally risky venture uh being a cubs fan um i thought was an interesting place to start that with one of those articles that you found brian so first of all um the cubs uh this will probably be a little bit backdated but they are now throwing everybody for a loop because they are actually winning and it's been you know super trippy because and the, uh, I, I found an article in the Scientific American, and uh, the title was Chicago Cubs, the, Go- the Goat Curse and the Psychological Roots of Superstition. And the, the whole kind of premise of this article is the, um, the human mind and how we deal with trying to deal with uncertainty. And it, it talks a lot about how uh, we make causal uh, relationships, even though those relationships may or may not exist. So it talks about like uh, being a Cubs fan, and um, as for those who don't know, the Cubs have a terrible record of winning and haven't won the the World Series for uh, quite some time. And there was a in the nineteen forty six uh, World Series, um, they finally got to the World Series, but there was uh, what was called the curse of the Billy Goat, um, and it was you know they had just like these weird little things that happened. You know, and people could kind of associate with like, okay, well, now we've lost so much. Now we had to find reason why. And it was that goat, you know, <laughs> which, you know, like when anybody like kind of says it out loud, it's it's obviously ridiculous because that's not the <laughs> case. But um, it, it talks about like how we develop superstitions and why and how our brain actually works. And um, it's just interesting uh, because – not only does it uh, kind of delve into why, um, you know, we kind of create these superstitions, but also uh, the effect of them and how there's actually a sense of community and a, a coping mechanism that comes as a result of, of superstition. And, you know, so that we can be able to kind of just make sense of the world. And a lot of times when we do have risk and we do have these um, propositions that we don't know the outcome but we need to like kind of like go into it feeling like there is some kind of influence that we can have on a situation by doing something. Uh, that's where we find these superstitions that pop up. And it was just really interesting to me uh, just because I was a, a casual Cubs fan for uh, a bit of my childhood. Um, my little league team was the Cubs. So growing up in a market that does not have a major league baseball team that uh, kind of glommed Cubs onto that. <laughs> but <laughs> I, uh, I was one of the lucky ones that was able to escape that addiction. And, but maybe, maybe maybe this is the year that pays off. Maybe by now we'll figure out that the, you know, the Cubs went to the world series, but so I history does not, it's not too kind. I grew up for those of you who understand uh, Chicago geographic boundaries. Uh, I grew up as a South side Cubs fan, which is not something that normally happens. <laughs> and uh, my dad said it was because he used to watch uh, the Bozo show and then directly after it, the Cubs were on. So he just kind of like transitioned <laughs> into it. So instead of ha- being a White Sox fan. As good a reason as any. Which is what you're supposed to be on the South Side. Um, we were a Cubs fan. And growing up, we would have to make excuses for why we were Cubs fans because there really wasn't a reason. Um, so you get this like, like, we're not fair weather fans. We, we stand by. You wouldn't hate your child if they brought home season Ds, would you? And, like, those sorts of things. So it's, like, a nice payoff. But it is interesting 
hearing my family members who are diehard. Well, half of them are Cubs. We're a divided family. Um, but half of them are Cubs, half of them are um, Sox. And having superstitious kind of things that they that they say that they're now they're now taking credit for the wins that are happening this year because of their faith, because of their um, dedication, because they have stuck to it all of these years. And um, I mean, I am a Cubs fan. I'm not a like a diehard. I don't like watch every game and I don't do anything like that, but it is fascinating listening to those excuses, but you can see them not just in Cubs. I mean, you can see them in, in politics, in healthcare. And I mean, like people use that kind of superstitious mindset um, to explain away and make things comfortable. All and, the time. Well, these are communities of people that are afraid of something. They're doing something risky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting when these superstitions are compounding on each other. Cause like, I remember back in the 2003, um, it, it was the national league championship series. It was like, uh, it was between um, the, the Marlins and uh, the Cubs and Bartman. Bartman happened mm-hmm. where there was this fan uh, that, you know, it was, it was a Cubs fan, you know, it was at Wrigley and he went out to reach uh, for a ball and interfered, you know, when I made it a home run when, you know, there was a, you know, the outfielder could be able to catch it, but wasn't able to because of Bartman. And it was interesting to see, you know, how the superstition of, you know, the curse of the goat was now, you know, then layered on onto person. Bartman, <laughs> but like, and it was, it was interesting and, and, you know, kind of, humorous but also when you uh so 30 for 30 actually did a documentary on bartman and you know the whole thing because he 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 got serious like death threats man like people wanted to like kill him for doing you know for interfering with that ball and you know and just so much frustration and um just anger was channeled into this one person and he still is off the grid Hmm. Since 2003, he is still off the grid, like, almost 15 years later. Will he be, like, allowed this year if they win to come back? Well, that's the thing is, like, because, like, <laughs> life. well, and that's a funny thing that the, the superstitions do. Maybe he becomes, like, you know, I don't know, like, he was the, we can flip he was the that really easy. Them. Yeah, I was <laughs> like, well, now we can be able to celebrate because, you know, who knows if we would have won, actually won the World Series. Maybe he saved us from going to World Series and the frustration that would occur at that point now. That, right, and that's, that's the kind of theme is going to be like chaos theory and how Bartman actually won the Cubs. <laughs> yeah. the, I won't be able to participate. He was a time I'm, traveler. It's like Bartman meets the butterfly effect. So why don't those superstitions apply to things like education? You don't see people, you know, doing, having superstitious thoughts as far as education goes. You could see people, Praying you should have seen children. me before tests. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> superstition was alive and well. I, I I don't see that so much with like the way the parents think about. It. Maybe like as you as a child in in the mix, but I don't really see those same quasi rational adults who are making well, superstitious claims about like a game of chance. Like, yeah, let's is take this away from superstition though, and think about what do communities of people do in response to stress or risk that is kind of that are kind of hysterical responses. Like it doesn't make any sense what they're doing. It doesn't always channel to, um, to a superstition per se, but it does often channel to behavior that doesn't make a lot of logical sense. And, you know, we do a lot of research on peer pressure among kids and we think groups of kids are always doing boneheaded things and why, who started it, Mm -hmm. who followed, why did it happen? And 
from a couple of weeks ago, there was a really good review in the New York Times of a book um, of a study that looked at the four traits that put kids at risk for addiction. And it's not exactly the story that we were told that some ringleader, you know, dragged them all down into this, uh, into the morass of drug use so that they could, you know, and then all these followers would just want to fit in and they're all dealing with the angst of teenagerhood. There is some angst there. So they, they identified the four risky traits are sensation seeking, impulsiveness, anxiety, sensitivity, and hopelessness. So three of those are obviously mental health related issues, not to say that people that suffer from any of those are mentally ill, but they, they could lead to that. So you are dealing with the sense of danger, risk, some kind of pain, um, although sensation seeking is not exactly like that. And that's an interesting kind of outlier. But I think what they actually found was in this study, they could identify the kids that demonstrated those traits most, provide them the most services in these not like specifically anti-drug messaging, just like general satisfaction and life happiness. And then with those kids kind of healthier and back in the general population, you didn't have all these crazy or not nearly as many of these crazy groups forming around these odd behaviors. What I'm, I mean, odd behaviors, risk taking behaviors, using drugs and things like that. So like, I'm fascinated to think how, how do these movements arise? And, um, among adults, it can be silly, like blaming a goat or ostracizing a human for no reason. (laughs) And among kids, but among kids, we take it very seriously because it looks so dangerous. You know, they're doing these things that are so self-destructive, apparently. Well, and I think kind of tying those two things together, I think some of the reasons why we don't as adults manifest the superstitious or the kind of almost like the high stakes behavior seemingly with things like, like even though our kids are the things that we care about probably the most in a lot of circumstances. Or, or we say we do, you know, one of those two. But I think that we we inherently assume an ability to have control in that, in some aspect of that relationship. And because of that, we actually, instead of, it's almost like a reverse effect instead of, you know, something where you feel like there's an element beyond you that goes into it, whether to varying degrees that you don't have any control over. um, You, we almost like double down on at times on the control factor. It's like you can respond to the lack of the feeling of control with, you know, with appealing to whatever, you know, luck or gods or whatever. That's definitely one of the things cited by kids Mm -hmm. in these studies too, of why they do what they do. Cause they could, Mm because they could choose to do it. Well, and I think that's the thing is like, I, I think that we, you know, we, we talk a lot about the various manifestations of adults thinking that they can control their kids into success or safety or anything else that they might want for them. And I think that's manifested in, um, you know, all kinds of things that, now we're kind of starting to question a little bit, which is, oh, massive amounts of homework. Does that actually have an, an impact? And there are studies now that are starting to question some of these things. Do, you know, all the testing things we've talked about ad nauseum. Um, I think that that's kind of, there's there's an interesting relationship. Then, and it's interesting to see that, you know, raising, I think interacting with a child just in general is maybe one of the most, when you strip everything away, one of the most high stakes things we do as humans is like, we're basically interacting with the generation of, of next humans. (laughs) And, and yet things like sports games, you know, things, things that are, you know, we almost have to use those as escape valves for, uh, 
for things that we, you know, for the importance so that we, we engage in sensitize. risky behavior mm-hmm. to assert control. I mean, it's such a weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it all comes down to like the, the degrees of influence, right? So like if we really think yeah, that we have an active role of influence on a situation, we tend to not resort to superstition and, you know, things, that, you know, throwing it to, you know, something other than our own power. You know, so, but like if we're a parent, we, you know, whether it's perceived or actual, we feel that we can be able to assert a certain amount of force onto the situation and it will have an impact. So, you know, we don't see those same behaviors that translate because with sports, for example, you know, I think that's a fantastic example because the fan has little to zero influence on the outcome. It's totally out of their hands. And so that's why we see a lot of superstition or gambling is another one where there's loads of superstition because there's no way for you to influence the outcome of what's going to happen, even though you are emotionally attached to it. But yet when we have, you know, our kids or other situations, we feel like we have a certain degree of influence and being able to actually, and I think what's really actually fascinating about this is act, the actual versus perceived influence because we, and it was, it was interesting. Just, I had an article, um, in the Atlantic about how America outlawed adolescence and it would, um, it went, Wait, and, when did that happen? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it went and, uh, recounted the story. I, um, I don't know if you guys remember as uh, several, um, it might've been almost a year now, but several months ago, uh, there was, uh, an officer at a school who, uh, was called in, uh, to uh, assist a teacher with a defiant student. Um, she wouldn't give her phone to the teacher and uh, when the, the officer came in, it escalated very, very quickly. And um, she, he ended up yanking her out of the desk and slamming her onto the floor, trying to handcuff her. And it was a very, and other kids in the class were Snapchatting it. Uh, and so people could be able to see what had happened. And there was a big, huge uh, uproar. And so then, you know, this article kind of recounted about that and, you know, what it actually means uh, to have, you know, trying to exert that influence and that power when it's actually just a built-in part of human development. Adolescents will be defiant is part of like them actually figuring out how they, what their role is in the world. But now because of a variety of different uh, situations, um, you know, stemming back to the 1980s when there was very, that there were several kids that were, you know, violently killed uh, at schools. And so then the zero tolerance, tolerance policies towards violence came into play. But now it's kind of gotten to the point where, you know, we, we aren't allowing our kids to be able to have that uh, level of freedom to develop and be able to explore defiance and explore, you know, being outside of the norm, because we do have this perceived amount of influence that we can exert on the situation, even though it's not really showing promising results. We still continue to do it because we were like, okay, you know, we can, we have that power to be able to exert over this situation to get the, the outcome that we're wanting to define. But the statistics aren't really backing that up. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's really interesting to me to kind of take into consideration, you know, what kind of power we have in a situation, especially when it involves kids. But like, it, it, yeah, I think you can translate that into other places where we find frustration and we find um, anger because we are trying to exert our influence, but it's not responding. Well, and just to throw this back to the drug 
the drug use study, think about the difference in approach. Like we go from uh, threatening, cajoling and jailing kids to actually solving, listening, finding out what the issues are and solving some of those underlying issues. It's not about control. It's about sort of this learning process together. And, you know, that must feel risky to people who are used to being just like, I'm just going to grab you and take you and put this in another space where you can't engage in that behavior. So I think that inverse, that relationship is one of the ones that I found the most compelling, both in all the stuff that everybody brought, but then just in life in general, I think when the thing that is actually the, you know, when the thing, that, when it, it feels risky to not be completely met, like com- completely trying to physically force or, or mentally force or to, to, to just to not force something can feel kind of risky in a way because well, you don't have a guarantee you're, you're actually being vulnerable to the other person being willing to make, wanting to make their progress for themselves or, or wanting to make or being able to make progress in a lot of ways. And I think that it's, you know, we're uncomfortable being that, that open to partnering well, in those things. And it's interesting how risk is actually taking the place of trust and how we perceive, you know, situations of trust as being risky, you know, just because it is kind of ceding that control and, you know, trusting that somebody else will pick it up so that, you know, everything will be okay. But, you know, for a lot of people, when you haven't had a good, a good relationship with that trust, then everything else feels a lot more risky. Therefore, you know, these types of situations pop up where, you know, forces exerted in um, places where it shouldn't. And, you know, like that balance between, you know, risk and trust in that relationship is very interesting to me. Well, I I went down a giant robot rabbit hole this week with my articles and um, read a bunch on. They're giant robots. I'm sorry. I'm having to throw in a smart. (laughs) It was amazing. Every time anybody says anything. (laughs) I love robots. Giant robot rabbits. (laughs) (laughs) But so. Are they coming to get us? um, If we have anything to do about it, yes. Uh, So, but it's interesting listening to this conversation and thinking about the way that we approach unknowns in science and in technology and how that's seen as a risk. And so science and tech, you know, innovators are forcing, trying to maybe not control, but gain some sort of control over that risk, over that void, over that unknown area that we still have and trying to push it forward. And really cool stuff is happening, but on the other side of the scientists and technologists who are creating, you know, whether it's biohacking or um, automation services and manufacturing, which are like really increasing productivity and letting humans be more human in the jobs that they're doing, um, which are some of the articles that I was looking at. Uh, you hear the other side of the chorus screaming, they're going to work us out of our jobs. The robots are going to take us over. Um, why are we making the robots smarter and that sort of thing? And so the, it's almost like, there's a binary relationship in that, you know, how we deal with risk. And, and I (laughs) clearly, because I went down a robot rabbit hole, I am (laughs) on the side of the technologist, but I do understand the fear that comes from, you know, why are you fighting? Why are you fighting that? Why can't we just be the way that we are? Well, and I think that's the, I mean, we've talked about this in past weeks too, of not in a specific thing, but the idea of the motivation of why you're the, or the motivation of how and why you're, you're approaching the unknown in the way that you are is a big 
it shapes it in a very major way if it what's on the other side of that if that makes sense and i think that that's where to me the the thing that i perceive the most as a risk not is is the is not the technological development itself but why it's being undertaken and and what if it's that whole thing of just like if it is to um, you know, if it is merely to advance a, a sense of your company's control over a certain area or to be only only for the sheer fact of, of you know, just the development itself, but and not with necessarily a more nuanced or well-rounded perspective of what that actually the benefit or value that that actually means to humanity. And then you have to ask the question to what part of humanity, but <laughs> because I mean, there are so many. You can twist anything. I mean, yeah, they did for not sure. try to make a hydrogen bomb when, you know, I'm like there's, there's scientific advances that came that totally. were then bastardized into something evil and awful by someone else. And, and, and sometimes by the same people, <laughs> sometimes by the same people, but even if your intention mm-hmm. is good from the beginning and yeah. someone sees more money or more power that could come if we use it in this different way, that, that happens. And I don't think that that's an excuse for not innovating. And I you know, and, although, and taking the risk of innovation. Yeah, although I'll, I have to say, like, I think in my mind, the the motivation of the technologists is pretty clear right now, and it's to sell us stuff. And uh, because they have to, I mean, that's their that's their prime directive. I don't know. A lot of the ones I were reading were to like cure Alzheimer's and to you know help people see and hear and and walk and like do those sorts of things, which are altruistic could be seen as a profit-generating thing. I mean, yeah, medical device but people... the are, reason why they have money is because the man behind the man says there's going to be a zillion people with Alzheimer's that are going to need to use this thing, right? So I, I think I'm kind of actually with you optimistic on the long front because eventually we'll find the warp drive and money will go away, mm-hmm. says Star Trek. And <laughs> that's probably... In one way or another, replicator thing that profit so that motive, I think, has to kind of change because it's not working this way. We just don't have enough money. All of us who get, if we get Alzheimer's, we w- I will not have enough money to afford whatever they're making at this point. So that has to change. But it's still scary to me that right now it's such a strong motivation there. And the prime example of this to me was the article that creeped me out this week from the Harvard Business Review. Um, it's called The Elements of Value. And they basically just in marketing speak, re-engineered Maslow's hierarchy of needs to try to figure out what things humans actually want. And that sounds okay. Like, okay, let's find out what humans want and give it to them. But it's not just to make us happy. I mean, they're actually, I think the quote in the article says, "Um, coming up with new concepts requires anticipating what else people might consider valuable. So what do they want today? How can we figure out what they will want tomorrow to give them what they want? Like, I can't figure out what's creepy to me about that, but it's just not quite right. Like I, I want to privately want what I want and seek what I'm seeking. And with this big pipeline of information and marketing and cool stuff to, for me to, you have to look at this pyramid. I mean, it covers every possible way you might want something in a very creepy way. And to know that people are are working to anticipate those needs and serve them up to me, this makes me feel like I'm maybe the robot that they're programming. I don't know. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I like love it. And that's probably because I'm in, I've been in community management and audience analysis and big data world for so many years that I like, I, and I am the optimistic person who's like, I see the good at the end of this tunnel of why we would be doing it. I also see the creeps who are sitting in the cubes next to me at some of the jobs hey. <laughs> who, you know, who, who are using it to a bad end. But I mean, I, I, 
I think that, well, okay. So I have been, you know, the American election that's happening is doing all kinds of hilariously terrifying and crazy things to our society and making us like drumming up all the stuff from the bottom of the the lake. Um, and for us to- Less and less hilarious by the day. Exactly. But one of the things I was thinking about was one of the things that scares people and the, the risk that people are seeing from the election right now is that their way of thinking and seeing the world and approaching their day-to-day life is being questioned. And one of the things that, the reason that that's happening is because their kids, the millennials, and the kids who are younger than that, will not accept, like, someone turning their nose at civil rights and someone turning their nose at 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 being, like, like, you're not supposed to be sexist. You're not supposed to be racist. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry, Grandpa. I'm sorry, Uncle. And I just made them all males. Sorry about that. Um, but it's just accurate. <laughs> it's, yeah, the, the data show. Um, but, uh, they're not, they're not accepting the, the younger generations are saying, no, you, I'm sorry that this is uncomfortable for you. You, you have to deal with the way that this is. And that is directly from people putting more control on the parenting pedagogies in the last 20 years have been more on, well, I mean, you could look at it from both ways. It's like giving the children more control of what they are thinking as they were growing up, as opposed to being like, just because I said so, and you did just because as, as so, the reasoning that but parents get. What a, what a fine line. So take the Harvard Business Review article and think about it from parenting. That probably makes you a pretty good parent because you're doing it for the only real altruistic reasons just for genetic but continuance or whatever but now to go do it for money and f- that just creeps me out like i don't i don't know where that line is but. but it's backfiring on people i think people are just like wait that's not what i wanted to happen i wanted you to be a nice person but like not make everybody else nice to everybody like that's not what we wanted it's just confusing to me how the people that we've created in the newer you know the younger generations right now are pushing forth a civil rights agenda <laughs> that the older generations are mad about, but they're the ones who inspired the values in the younger generations. Or maybe they saw the values that they had and they were more intelligent and they said, oh, wow, we don't want to think like that. But I just, I see that dichotomy and the and the the risk that the older generations, and it is older generations. There are people in the younger generations who also have these toxic kind of emotions, but um, it is by and large like an older phenomenon that's happening. Well, and it's it's interesting to see because I think that there's several different uh, communities where this exists, where um, leadership structures generally, te- especially kind of in uh, patriarchal type societies, tend to put older people in charge, and by therefore, as people are older, they they are more uh, risk averse and a lot more conservative uh, in a lot of those lines of thinking. And so it's, it is interesting to see um, because the millennial generation is massive. Like there's so many people in this, in this generation and the only gen- other generation that, you know, was that large happens to be the older baby boomer generation who is now inhabiting these leadership roles, but are kind of trans starting to transition out of them. And so it, it is interesting to see how, there are demands from the younger millennial generation for things to be done their way. And then, you know, the older generations are saying, that's just not how we're going to do it. And we're the ones in charge. And just like that, that conflict, it's interesting. I mean, Matt and I have talked about this, you know, kind of quite a bit. Uh, And just like the relationship between those two. And 
it is interesting to see how much risk actually um, is involved with that strife because the millennial generation is just like, hey. We, we think we got all the risk yeah. passed down. Like the risk goes all the way just well, to it, the younger, younger, younger. Generation. Well, and it's, it's been baked into the generation. Yeah. You know, like when you have, you know, 2008 uh, that happened, when you have, you know, the early 2000s with, you know, the war on terror. And I mean, everything that's been baked into this generation has been risky. You know, and there's been a lot of high risk situations. And so I don't know, like it's, it's interesting to see the tolerance. I mean, and I think that maybe, maybe this is the, my argument kind of falls apart just because the baby boomers also saw quite a bit, but the, the middle part of the, the century was actually really, there, there wasn't much risk to it. You know, it, everything was really working pretty well. And, and so then, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how that informs people and how, they see the world well, and what they demand from it, it. It was working well for some people in power. <laughs> right. And there are a lot of people for whom it wasn't working well at all, but they got to ignore them. And I think, and that's, I think there's a generational dynamic like that right now where, you know, I don't know if the baby boomers are actually seeing what it's like to be the millennial or generation Z now with, with like, how would a baby boomer feel with no job security and not even knowing what the jobs are like, what will not even knowing what they might entail? There's no way to tell right now what in ten years. Well, that's why they're trying to bring manufacturing back because that's a known, <laughs> which is a fascinating thing because we've forced it out of the country. We'll for talk a about reason. a crazy superstitious thing to avert mm. uh, avoid risk, right? Like manufacturing is going to save us in the next fifty years. Yeah, <laughs> Let's bring back gigantic plants and have people do the things that we know that robots can do really, really well. Like that's the thing that like gets me. And it's, we're supposed to do yeah. to free us to be able to get good educations and mm-hmm. do interesting things. Right? Well, and it's interesting to see like, cause I, I am on the older side of the millennial generation. Um, but like now looking forward to my kids generation and the stuff that like, and, and this kind of ties back to some of the earlier conversations that we had, but um, in uh, uh, raconteur, there was an article about how artificial intelligence is the next giant leap in education. And it went through how, you know, kind of the current situation of how classes are expanding because uh, more and more kids are being born. You know, the av- international average has gone from 21 to about 26 uh, kids in a class. And teachers are now being uh, pulled in so many different directions uh, in order to provide personalized learning. Um, and so they were kind of talking about how uh, the it's emerging that artificial intelligence could be able to help teachers analyze what's happening in their classroom on an individual basis and be able to institute different um, technologies to be able to bring kids up that are maybe on lower ends. And so, but like right now that's, you know, in, you know, in the years um, before that's not been, that hasn't been possible. And uh, so artificial intelligence is being able to work with kids and, you know, through these, these different technologies. And there was one um, specific one called, uh, Wiz Education, which is a digital math tutor, and um, that the head of um, a product uh, said implications for teachers are stark. How do they deliver a teaching experience that meets each individual, uh, each child's individual needs? Our research, our research shows that a four-year learning gap now exists in classrooms the world over, which is mind blowing. You know, because like we see little parts of it, but like a four-year gap, and one teacher is supposed to be able to cover you know, everywhere from their highs all the way down to their lows. And, and 
anybody that's been in education has understood this for quite some time, but being able to actually see how this coming generation, we have this aversion to, you know, AI, you know, just because of our kind of experience with it, but like seeing, you know, how it can be able to be implemented and how that's going to be a very comfortable thing for kids to be able to to have uh, working with them. It's kind of interesting. Well, I read an article about saying you're not, (laughs) again, Sorry for all the robot articles, but it says your new best, your next new best friend might be a robot. Oh, I thought it was going to be a rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> rabbit. So close. Oh. So close linguistically. Um, <laughs> but uh, basically saying that they're, you know, they're working on the emotional intelligence or the appearance of emotional intelligence within um, a lot of the different robotic frameworks and the artificial intelligence sort of things. Um, and while they can't replace humans, they can um, satiate some of the needs that you have that are on a very base level. So because we're so busy and, um, you know, like if you just need someone to like vent to um, who's just like, oh, gosh, that's awful. Yeah. Like, oh, I can't believe that. I'm so sorry about that. Like the the just kind of platitudes that we give in normal conversation where you may or may not actually like really need that person to be kind of having an emotional connection with you. You just need to kind of vent um, where robots can, can kind of step in there. And that's kind of the thinking as far as this goes. Now I don't think they should be the next new best friend, but if we can think of a way of helping those overtaxed teachers or those overtaxed, you know, situations where like those, the little things just kind of recognizing that, you know, just being acknowledged by something, if that can be done by a automated machine so that more bandwidth can be left for the more intensive things that humans need to be doing with the kids. You can read a really, all these really boring articles about this, or you can read a really exciting science fiction book about (laughs) it that I know about. It is actually the book that got me into education in the first place. It's called The Diamond Age by the great Neil Stevenson, one of his early novels. And it's in a future world um, in Shanghai. A rich gentleman leaves, has a, has computer programmers uh, create a book, like a digital book, to teach his daughter, his young daughter, who he's not going to be able to raise, everything she'll need to know in life. And to program it, they don't get the AI just right in the beginning of the book. So there has to be a human for the prototype book, there is a woman uh, somewhere remote who's actually kind of the tutor and the brain behind it. But the whole time that the program is running, it's training machine intelligence programs to do exactly, you know, the things that you're talking about to be able to respond as a, as a human ish entity would. And what ends up happening in the book is the girl gets the best education that a human has ever had and has a deeply human relationship with her, tutorial book but the ai learns enough that it starts to spawn additional tutorial books that they get acquired by millions of orphans in the slums of shanghai and they all become educated by these primers but they that education is not quite good enough to make them all sort of messianic figures that are going to save the city but they do find each other and they band together and they end up all meeting up and by joining together as humans at that point, they have enough leg up on everything to actually create the society that they want to. And so my school projects that I've worked in have always been these blended programs where some of it is run by a machine and some of it by a human trying to find that right balance. But that book is like the best science fiction. He just was trying to explore that issue. What what would be better about a human? Um, what 
what would be good enough about the machine if you put in some of these other elements. Well, and I think that, um, so jumping from uh, learning and, and education into another kind of adjacent uh, human question space of art and music and um, some of the things that are typically, you know, this, we've seen the art, the articles coming out lately of like AI, you know, bot creates an art, you know, paints a picture and, and writes a poem and these different things. It's like the old articles about the elephant painting a picture. Now yeah. The computer well, and I have to, I have to say, so I read this, um, this was from a few weeks ago, but it just like, it stopped me cold and I felt like it was, it really stayed with me. Um, but the Americana Fest in, uh, Nashville, uh, several weeks ago, I think it was a month ago now, um, T-Bone Burnett gave the keynote speech and, um, this article just, it's basically just the, um, the transcript of that talk, but it's, um, called music confounds the machines. And he takes a very decided, um, perspective on, um, what the role of art and what the role of human expression and, and humanity just in general is in, um, in relationship to technology. And, uh, just some of the, I, I just thought it was such an interesting thing to think about because it was such a clear and bold statement of a, of a pretty specific perspective on it. But it, he says technology only technology does only one thing in and of itself. It tends toward efficiency. It has no aesthetics. It has no ethics. Its code is binary, but everything interesting in life, everything that makes life worth living happens between the binary. Mercy is not binary. Love is not binary. Music and art are not binary. You and I are not binary. And I think that, um, and he goes on, I mean, there's just, you really should just read it. It's, it's pretty fascinating, but, um, but I think that there's something, and I think that uh, we way multiple episodes ago talked about how we always are trying to relate the human brain to computer operations and that we kind of have just used that analogy so much that we've erased, we, we've stopped thinking about whether that's actually true or not. If our brains actually do function as, as, as much like computers as, as that convenient uh, analogy might indicate. And this for me was a, a very, and he, he goes on, I mean, the, the perspective that he was taking was that music and the way that music is being treated is it's becoming so commoditized that it's completely ignoring what, you know, it's, it's treating it as if it's on an equal level with something that could be, you know, produced not from human spirit, essentially not from distilled human spirit and what an important role those human expression um, elements are and that they actually are more important than all of the rest of this. Um, so are we kind of saying that like seeking the efficiency of technology, we're risking humanity, human endeavor, I mean, aesthetics? Like, I, I, that's what I go back and forth with because I, I, on the one hand, I don't, I don't deny the importance of, I think that there's, there's clearly something that is incredible of striving for more efficient ways of doing things than we've done them in the past. And we can see any number of of ways that that's brought things that benefit our lives and make us more able to connect. Um, it's from an advanced place of understanding our own humanity. But I also see this flip side and this risk that is associated with it, that to, to go so completely into that being the, the single goal, the single guiding principle of our lives is of seeking this almost blind advancement in a way for just for advancement's sake and not valuing some of the things that are the surrounding elements that don't fit into that binary worldview. Um, I do think that there is a risk there. And I do think that that's part of what kids are, are 
um, part of what I think what we see happening in the millennial generation is a bit of a pushback to that, to say, to, to be kind of the canary in the coal mine of that being so aggressively stripped out of, um, our education and our, you know, you know, our work lives and different things like that. I think you see younger people pushing back on that. And so I don't know. I don't, I think that there's a, there's a lot of really rich space to explore and question what we value about ourselves as humans, what we value about others as humans, whether we value others and how we go about creating continued progress with those things in mind. Well, and it's, it's interesting because like, kind of as you were talking about art and you know, kind of contrasting that to our previous conversation about actually using AI in education and how it can be appropriately used – it's interesting to see um, the relationship of technology to basically have people's backs, you know, and basically say, you know, maybe there isn't a, a human connection right now that can be you know, watching over you in a mentor type of position. But like we have a whole bunch of different tools that we can be able to use to, you know, have to let you know that, okay, I at least have a backstop of, you know, some kind of direction or support. And I mean, I think about, the the use of Google, I mean, so th- this is just kind of an anecdotal story, but like, um, we had my first we, uh, me and my wife, we had our first kid two years ago, and it was insane the uptick of my Google usage. You know, of like, is this normal? You know, how how do I do this? Like, is this okay? When should I do this? And uh, and I was constantly doing these searches, you know, to be to reaffirm myself like things are okay. Even though like, you know, but again, that's not Google. That's not Google being able to answer that for you. That's a device to connect you to other people being able yes. to communicate that. I don't think you would feel that same way if it was just you straight up going to maybe a computer to ask that. But see, th- <laughs> Anna, there's, a, there's a different, but th- this is where Amazing. it gets really interesting to me because like, for example, Echo, you know, you can be able to actually ask a machine, you know, those exact same questions, just like you do a Google search and it can be able to then reply to you, you know, Based off of the based massive, off of what Amazon wants to sell. You. Well, but but also, <laughs> but also, you know, just like this massive amount of data that's right. been created over the past two decades yeah. on the internet. And to to that effect, I read an article um, uh, in the New York Times about how tech giants are devising real ethics for artificial intelligence because because as a behavioral well, if the tech pattern, giants are devising it. Sorry, I'm but, getting a little. <laughs> but that's the but that's the point is that you know if our normal society is just complacently starting to ask Google for every single solitary mm-hmm. thing they need, at least they are having the conversations. Whether or not they come to the right conclusions is mm-hmm. another subject completely. But at least they are having those conversations, being like, "Wow, people are turning to us for." Not only, um, you know, mechanical operational kind of questions, but also ethical questions. And I think moral that's the questions. interesting thing, though, and maybe this is and this is a much bigger conversation. I mean, we're wrapping up, but I think that the um, I, I think there's something and I, I don't know if I've really figured out what I think about this of I if I think about it, you know, even just using a Google search as an example, if some information was just displayed to me without any sort of context that grounds it in any sort of other human's experience. I don't know that I, I don't know that I take in that information the same way as I do another parent being able to just be connected to another parent. Who's like, yeah, we noticed this about our three-year-old. We saw this, we saw this, and this is how we kind of came. Like, 
I that connection well, is. I've just had so many conversations with like anti-vaxxers and like people who like have that real experience hasn't been like, well, I've seen someone who took a vaccine and now is autistic. And I'm like, well, wow. Okay. So just because you're a human and I'm getting this feedback from Right. You. But I think that there's a, there's also this thing of just like, I, I don't know. I think that like, I, I think stripping away and it goes back a little bit. We talked about this just a little bit last week of like, they've actually been, they can't open up the black box of deep learning development anymore. So mm-hmm. essentially they, they are getting, they've developed algor- algorithms that will serve up information but it's getting advanced enough that they actually can't figure out how to figure out, they can't figure out how to understand the way the machine figured out how to give them that information, if that mm, makes sense. Yeah. And once you lose that connection, then you really are in a, you really are in a position where the, the answers that may be being served up to, to fill the, un, the unknown with the known, who, who, and where is that coming from? Well, and I think interesting because like when you do a Google search now, you and know, why? the, the, the <laughs> the automatic answer, like if it's a direct question, cause I, I type in direct questions all the time just because usually you can find some really good forums that something's been discussed, but there is a prompted, you know, answer that, like that's in bold on top of Google that, and it, there's been multiple times when I've been able to like, go, oh, I don't know, let me, I'm going to read it, you know, it, to wherever that source is. And it wasn't actually the most accurate, you know, answer. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is interesting. And I think that's a really interesting point that you brought up because Using my example before of, of being a new parent, like you go, you'd go on to baby center and everybody has a ton of different, you know, quote unquote expert opinions because they had a kid once and it, it's all very, very wide and different. But like there is a human element of being able to like pull in all those different perspectives and then bounce that off of what your own experience has been to figure out what the best answer is for you. Yeah. And you have and, to, it's like any reputation based site, like, you go on Yelp, I'll have to read every one of the reviews and then even click through to a couple of their other reviews and be like, and I don't like the same things. So well, I don't even, care if you, you like look this. at like Amazon and like the number one thing aside from Prime, which we've already, I've already discussed, I'm feeling I've, I use angsty. a lot. I know today's an angsty day. Sorry. You guys have probably Amazon Prime. It's caused you angst. <laughs> <laughs> it's an angst week. But, um, but I think it's the thing that I value the very most about Amazon. Truly is the fact that, and I'm starting to value it less for this reason is the reviews and the, the fact that I can actually get a, a, a perspective and a, an understanding of someone's experience contextualized in, and I can tell, you know, all that applies to some, that's somebody that I relate to or resonate with. And I can, I can kind of trust this or not, you know, you'd have to discern for yourself if it's, if that's something you actually agree with, but I've started noticing, and this is, I, a, a form of quote unquote technology in itself. It's not necessarily tech technology the way we consider it, but the whole thing about paid, paid reviews that is just, it's starting, this is showing you how much I use Amazon because I know a lot about that, but like it's in the last few months, this thing of like paid reviews of people getting product or getting paid to give, you know, reviews for different things has just massively increased. Like I, I've just seen it. It's and just because the cottage industry is around it. Yeah, so totally. Agencies. Exactly. And so that that is increasing efficiency for people who want to introduce a product and have the credibility of having reviews and so get the uptick in sales. And it's it's really starting to dilute something that I find genuine value in. And so, and I'm starting to distrust all of it a little bit more. And so it's, anyway, we've gotten off on a tangent and into the weeds, which I will say is, this though, because whenever we have 
an increase of these technologies and an increase of communications, there's also the gaming the element that comes through with it and how people are gaming that type of thing. But the interesting part about that is like there seems to always be the next Yeah, the level. normalizing, yeah. Because like, and, and that's what kind of where, you know, kind of to bring this to, you know, kind of a point for me. Um, I kind of trust in that because no matter where we've been and whatever advances we make and how things go off the rails, like there is a normalizing element that always comes into the place where people are like, okay, our BS meter actually picked that up and that's not valuable. And so I'm going to go somewhere else. And, and human activity has been able to kind of show that. And so I think that, you know, whenever we do have these, uh, we, we do run the risk of, you know, being led down, you know, paths that aren't genuine and that are fake, but collectively it seems, um, we will have a course correction. Sometimes it's painful, but we will have a course correction and we can kind of get back onto a track of like what actually is real. And so anyway, well, we're running the risk at the moment of talking too long. So we're going to wrap this up, but I, I feel like there were several threads of pretty interesting things that, um, yeah, I have a feeling we'll probably continue into a lot of our thinking this next week. But yeah, until then, I've been like really afraid to buy a sweater. You know? But <laughs> that I'm, is one of the more. I'm gonna go look at some Amazon reviews. <laughs> take oh, geez. the cool and thing is, is that we don't really grow a lot now as adults, and so you can keep it forever. <laughs> that's big. That's why it's so risky. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Big decisions. All right, we'll try to do have it. a good week. Thanks. Thanks for being a part of The Wandering this week. See where it takes us next week by signing up for our weekly episode newsletter at happywandererpodcast.com. Let us know where The Wandering takes you by chatting with us on Twitter at the underscore wonderment. Start the exploring with your kids with creative activities on these topics at thewonderment.com. And follow us to get mini episodes throughout the week on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Dogcatcher, and other top podcasting sites. See you out there.